might be a Viking or a Saxon or a Roman, but tell me, do you like them? Would you sex them? Would you bone them? Would you go to bed with King Ethelred? Would you bunk William the Conqueror up in the sheets with Samuel Pepys? Mussolini was a meanie, led a fascist insurrection, but does he make you creamy? Does he give you an erection? Would you pork Richard the Duke of York? Does a boner start when you think of Bonaparte? Are you sexually aroused at the thought of Pol Pot? Historical hot or not? Hello and welcome to Historical Hot or Not, the history podcast that rings the division bell of history and calls the parliamentary vote of sexual assessment. My name is Ed McCaffrey, I am not a historian, and this is... Catherine Mather, and I am also not a historian, but we are comedians who are horny for history. And today we're joined by Stephen Allen. Are you horny for history? Uh, yes, I'm horny for, for history. I'm not a historian, but I am, a, I guess, a horned dog, and therefore that makes up for more of it, doesn't it? Are you generally horny as well, or just for <laughs> history specifically? Well, I think you can tell just by my general demeanour the level of, uh, of hornery that I live with <laughs> on a regular basis. So, I mean, yeah, obviously I like history. I'd also get relatively um, turgid for geography. That one's not quite as good, is it? But you get the idea. You do look like someone who'd like history, Steve. You've got a great background now, but I've got a suspicion that if we just turn the camera to the left, you just see piles and piles of Anthony Beaver novels. And I don't mean that as, a, as an offence because I've got a lot of Anthony Beaver novels in my own house. <laughs> I'm all about the beaver. Yeah, I think we've already established that. Um, the well, this is a shed. This is the thing. This is the hiding, the lie that this backdrop is. Is it's my soundproof shed, which has got no. faster internet, wow. internet connection to my shed than I have in the house because I do a radio show from in here and voiceovers and some web streamy things. Which is why this setup is yeah better than where I live. Have we considered moving in? <laughs> oh yeah, of course I have. Most days, I love the idea. I I actually got. Um, this is it gives away too much information. I got a carpenter to come around and put a different kind of lock on the gate, so I don't have to go through the house to get in and out of the shed, <laughs> out into the world. And there was a moment where I did think, like, I'm I'm this close away from just living in the shed. Uh, mm. I got keys to it. I I was tempted to have a, a different letterbox out there and just put A next to it, so it's the same. Yeah. But I'd have to pay council tax somehow. They'd sting me for it, so I didn't do it. Yeah. Have you got a kettle in there? Uh, No, I've got an espresso machine. Does that count? That's so much more fancier. (laughs) (laughs) I don't drink tea, so i just got my pods over here. Air conditioning unit over there. Wi-Fi router up there, a fan. That's that's all you need, isn't it? Steve N. Allen. uh, So you're a stand-up comedian. Uh, You alluded to being a radio presenter. Uh, I think you're a writer as well. Are all these things true? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a writer as well. I mean, it's difficult to know, isn't it? It depends on how much money you get paid for it. Then again, even then, I reckon if you get paid for writing, it's just confidence, isn't it? It's turning up and saying, oh, I can I can do jokes. And at the end of it, if they don't laugh, you still get paid. Um, yeah, I have what they call a, a portfolio career, which <laughs> as I get older, I realise means I've not been successful enough in any one area to sustain myself entirely through that. So I need a bit of the others. So I just add it all together. And yeah, if it involves telling some sort of punchlines for a small amount of money, I will work on that and amass bigger bigger sums by doing loads. Which bit's your favourite? trying to think if I'll get in trouble for saying this. I mean, it's definitely stand-up. I don't know if I should say that in a way that might ruin my other careers, but it's, it's the most immediate. I mean, in some ways, that's a nice thing. On radio, you can do a thing that you think is funny and you leave that room thinking you've done a funny. Whereas on stage... <laughs> You do. You could do something you think's funny, and then you find out so quickly 
uh, the, the the audience can prove you wrong. So, you know, I suppose that's better. I mean, with podcasting, mm-hmm. and especially this podcast, that distance between the joke being told and the laugh being received is even greater. It's, it's often yeah. weeks later when I'm looking at the podcast stats where I realise, oh shit, nothing I've said for the past <laughs> year has been funny at all. To be fair, the last time we gigged together, Stephen, was um, possibly one of the worst gigs of my life. Um <laughs> Please add extra detail so it doesn't sound like you saw my <laughs> Yeah, and thought, yeah. why is stand-up? <laughs> then I went on and smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was in, well, I don't feel like I should say where it was because um, it was in a part of what, the true. world that is often accused of shagging cousins. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't want to insult the area, no. so instead, let's just hint. Yeah. They love a cousin around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you know it's been a bad gig when the promoter themselves says to you after you've got off stage, I didn't think you'd last that long. <laughs> Did he mean in terms of time on stage or just career-wise? I don't know. I did not ask to clarify. <laughs> uh, did, did, I didn't, did you do well? I was going to say, after we did that gig, because um, you left before I went on, mm-hmm. um, I, I, it's one of the few gigs I've got a story about. So oddly... Me and the other half and my son went on holiday to roughly the same area the next week. In, as in like two or three days later. Wow. A lot of driving. I really should have planned it better. Mm-hmm. And on the first day, I got recognized wow. from that gig. Yeah. Which you you know how rare that is. Mm-hmm. But I played it like um, just Mr. Big Daddy Famous. Yeah. Because my other half was like, do you get recognized all the time? I'm like, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, did you do well, or was it uh, one of those horrendous things where you stood in a queue at Tesco? Someone goes, "Are you that comedian from the?" Other- <laughs> I didn't think you were funny. I don't find women funny, and you're like, "Oh my god, there are three other people in front of me in the yeah. queue." Please, for the love of God, hurry up! Maybe I don't need these tampons. <laughs> this is the gift of self scan. Don't why you're near people. I, I try and eschew them. Um, no, the I put it this way: the um, the couple that recognised me did not say to me that they don't find women funny. So. <laughs> Big thumbs up, then. Steve and Alan. Audiences uh, may know you from being a presenter. The right word. One of the sort of news presenters on the Daily Mash. You've also uh, regularly guest on GB News, offering your satirical takes on the state of the nation. You're the only person I can think of that seems to straddle uh, two quite extreme culture war outlets. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah. a fair thing to say, because <laughs> the Daily Mash is just something like anti-woke people fucking hate. Uh, but then obviously GB News is something that a lot of uh, young lefty people, especially in comedy, don't like either. Does your um, ability to operate professionally in both camps of the culture war make you the Switzerland of the modern culture war? <laughs> <laughs> Do you get any flack yeah. from online partisans about doing either or both? Or do you get respect for, for doing them both? A, a small amount of flack on each side, I suppose. There is more, oddly, there's more flack from comedy in the left for going on GB News. There's just vague, uh, coarse insults about being on um, Daily Mash or, you know, Late Night Mash and the Mash Report from people of the right. Because they just kind of say, oh, that wasn't funny. And I've had far worse insults, you know, saying this is what people don't understand. Saying to a comedian, you're not funny is not the damaging, <laughs> uh, life threatening wound you think it is. <laughs> yeah. So you can really shake, shake that one off. I mean, we know we all we all felt like that after we did that gig in the uh, cousin shagging area. <laughs> so we're used to it. Um, but yeah, I get more flack from the other way around, which is weird hmm. because I, I lean to the left anyway, in a political sense, before you get too ahead of yourselves. Um, so being on Late Night Mash and Mash Report, not that shocking, really. Whereas going on a more of a right-leaning outlet, 
But everyone moans about the modern day, everyone's in their echo chambers. And so to actually, and that's normally when they leave it, don't they? Everyone's in their echo chambers these days, and then they stop at that yeah. point and just go back to their own echo chamber. So actually driving in, parking up and walking into someone else's echo chamber, I thought there'd be more kind of like, you go, Steve, you go and fight for the left, <laughs> you throw some ideas in. And it's, I've not been met with that attitude, put it that way. Mm. Do you reckon it could be because, and I'm just speculating here because I haven't looked at GB News's like stats in a while. Do you reckon it's because maybe the Daily Mash gets more viewers, perhaps? That, that the disparity between the criticism you get from both? Or is it, say, that certain white wing types will be so livid and furious at the sight of seeing Nish Kumo on their television that they're driven into a comment box fury before they even get to the sight of you on the news desk, which, to be fair, might calm them down. You know, the sight of someone who looks like that might be like, oh, okay, I can chill out. It's not just a, a brown man telling me what I think should yeah. fit. And in some episodes, I think the news desk <laughs> was the balance that Ofcom required. So whilst the show, because you know, during some of the series, like Brexit was in the news. You're going to talk about that. Um, Theresa May was in the news. It needs talking about Donald Trump, obviously. So all of these things that seem like they're in a certain direction that people watching the BBC complain about, you need to give them balance to try and rein in the complaints. It won't rein in the complaints. You try and <laughs> present, present both options. People just complain about the one they don't like. So quite often we were the Jeremy Corbyn Starmer kind of joke making platform on the show. So there might be a bit of that, I suppose. Whatever was happening on the main part of the show, we we give a bit of counterbalance to. Um, but then I don't know. There is, there is. It's it's less shocking that comedian goes on comedy show. I suppose <laughs> so. No one's going to be True. pointedly attacking me for that. Whereas comedian goes on and does some comedy whilst trying to make points on GB News shouldn't be as shocking as it is. I didn't think it would be shocking. I, yeah, I, I thought it would be good. You know, for everyone. If I didn't turn up there, then they they'd have Lawrence Fox saying more. So. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but uh, for, for those listening, the Lawrence Fox GB News thing happened in the last 24 hours. Well, and I wasn't going to bring it up because the big <laughs> problem is we're about to talk about who we'd like to shag, which feels like this is <laughs> um, the wrong day. That is, to be that is a good that, point. But, mm. Well, hopefully by the time we release mm. it, uh, that, that whole story will have cooled down. The people that we're talking about having sex have been dead for over 150 years, and I think that makes it okay. Does that make it better? Does it? <laughs> we're just respecting the dead. Historical hot or not. The format of the show is we will pitch a historical dead person to one another, to you also, Stephen. We objectify them, basically. We have a little look at a picture of them, decide whether we'd fuck that. Uh, if not, if, <laughs> even if so, we find out about the person themselves. Uh, and then at the end, we decide whether we'd fuck them. If we would, they end up on the Bay or Tap Latestry. If not, we will ghost them. Uh, the- the picture that we're going to send you uh, will be from their e-trothed profile, uh, which is an entirely real and not fictitious dating app that we just made up uh, to oil the wheels that is this podcast. So if you open your e-trothed app, and by that, Steve, I mean the, the group messenger chat that Kath created earlier with all three of us in it, I have sent you a photo of Robert. He is 62 and he is from Bury, mm. Lancashire. Oh, I already don't like him if he's from Bury. I'm from Rochdale. What do we make of this? Is this guy hot? Uh, Steve, what do you reckon? I mean, my my immediate thoughts, yes. But that's it could just be because he's a bit fancy and I'm drawn to, you know, the power of the money. Um, <laughs> I'm now, my second thought is I'm worried what's going on with that neck. Because why would you need to cover it that high up? There's some sort of either pox, buboes, goiters, that kind of lark. 
Well, maybe he's got a lot of hickeys there because he is, you know, an absolute dog. So, um, yeah, it's, it's still quite hot. I reckon when he was a teenager, he got like, you know, people get misjudged neck tattoos. Like he's probably got like a leopard climbing up onto his face. <laughs> so he's had to wear this like cro- huge, ludicrous cravat style neck thing. Uh, to hide it. Otherwise, he would never have uh, got into Parliament. Yeah, because, I mean, this is the thing about lasers. Now you can get them removed. In the era era before lasers, <laughs> the only way you could do it was uh, cravat technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he does look a bit like, you know, when you see those ladies, uh, I don't know which African tribe it is, but where they get the rings and put them around their neck. He just, he looks like his neck goes on into his torso, sort of. <laughs> like it's kind of coming out of his breast bone. And and then going back and up, like he's a jack in the box. Oh. Unless they unless they took the photo kind of mid comedy gulp, you know, maybe like <laughs> he might have been doing that. When I say photo, just speed painting. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, he looks very pale and pointy. He is. I think he's quite handsome. I love his hair. Genuinely, if I had more confidence, I'd do my hair like this. He's it's sort of like brushed up at the top and away, and then forward at the side. So it's creating this like wave that sort of goes away from his head and then like collapses back into it. It's lovely. It looks like he's dried it just by he's just stuck his head out of a moving car, hasn't he? That's how he dried <laughs> that one. Just yeah, <laughs> Eddie currents get that. Yeah. <laughs> he's got that sort of tuberculosis chic, hasn't he? <laughs> you know, because he's very very pale, but he's just got the rosy cheeks. Yeah, he's definitely got a handkerchief with a little bit of blood on it, hasn't he? Yeah, that he's just like rubbed that onto his cheeks to make himself <laughs> look healthy. According to the January 1830 edition of Cosmopolitan, tuberculosis chic was very much in among the aristocracy of uh, Northern England. Well, I mean, it, it, it genuinely was. And also, uh, why not visit our Reddit page? And I've done an article on about how tuberculosis uh, influenced Victorian fashion. If oh, you right. want to read that, because at the moment it is just me, Aidan, and friend of the show, Reese, slash my boyfriend, who <laughs> texts for us. Also, I gave the game away. <laughs> when you said I've done this Reddit post about, I went, oh, which means even I was quite surprised <laughs> to find out that you, you'd done that. I'm literally the only person using our Reddit page, is me. <laughs> kind of just before we move on from why I think he's uh, sexy, I've just realised he is a man of style, of class, of, of course. some sort of social standing, because he's standing in front of a grey backdrop. What? And that's what makes you really show off your sexiness. Maybe he's in a shed as well. <laughs> yeah. A Wi-Fi enabled shed in a Bury in 1824. They don't have Wi-Fi in Bury. We'd have sheds in Bury. <laughs> <laughs> Remind us to listen. a lot of them. With a shit football club. <laughs> Very good town centre and market, though. We can't afford the hit on the listeners, Kev. Um, if you are from Bury, fuck yourself. <laughs> we- <laughs> listeners, including listeners from Bury, who we're very happy to have on board, you can play along by going... <laughs> you know we are. You can play along by opening the uh, podcast notes and there's a link to the photograph of the picture we're talking about. Robert Peel was born at Chamberhall Berry to the rich textile industrialist and parliamentarian Sir Robert Peel, first baronet, and his wife Ellen Yates, who was a woman, which back then was enough. At Harrow School, he was a contemporary of Lord Byron, who claimed Peel never got into scrapes. This is an example of a hot not pod crossover, as we've already done an episode on Lord Byron. All of these characters effectively occupy a hot not pod shared universe, which, because they're historical, 
it's actually just our universe. It's the actual universe, shared universe. In 1808, Peel became the first Oxford student to take a double first in classics and mathematics. Steve N. Allen, did you go to university? Were you a scrape collector or were you scrape averse? What, as in like he got into some scrapes? He, at Harrow School, he was a contemporary of Lord Byron. Who, yeah, he claimed Peel got into no scrapes, which is less scrapes than Theresa May, who at least got into one Wheatfield-related scrape. That's true. Theresa May did an interview a couple of a couple of weeks ago now where um, the story that she told was how when she joined the Young Conservatives, she was invited to a Vickers and Tarts party and wasn't allowed to go. And at that point in the interview, I did think, your best anecdote is not going to a party. <laughs> wow. Having um, a good party. <laughs> I, I think I got into some interesting things at university. That was the age when... It would have been back home in a holiday, but I started a fight with myself in a mirror in a nightclub because I got so drunk. Um, so that's one of my <laughs> favourite stories. Because my mates told me the story afterwards, and apparently I actually said, when they were saying, why are you getting angry? What, what's, what's wrong? And I said, that ugly bastard over there keeps staring at me. <laughs> Peel entered politics in 1809 at the age of 21 as MP for the Irish Rotten Borough of Cashel Tipperary. For listeners who don't know, a rotten borough was a constituency with hardly anyone living there. So by gaining one, you could have undue influence within Parliament. And true, this is true, there was one in Wiltshire that until 1832 was just an uninhabited hill, which nevertheless had two MPs representing it. <laughs> Can you imagine being an MP at 21? Yeah, if there's no one living there, yeah, I could. Open up your surgery, <laughs> just you in a room on your own on every Friday. So I, I used to, uh, if we're allowed brief asides, now you've mentioned Wiltshire. I used to live there because I did, I was on the breakfast show on GWR in my youth when I was a cheesy radio presenter. Um, and... Great Western Railway. No, well, sadly, sadly not. <laughs> Probably would have got more listeners. Um, but I learned about the town of Imber, which is still a thing in Wiltshire. And that's a town with population zero because uh, World War Two, they turfed everyone out. The Ministry of Defence took it because they needed target practice. So they commandeered this uh, this small town and said, we'll give it you back after the war. And they never did. So now there's a village there where the, the buildings have all been shot to shit because this has been a lot of target. Pra- and weapons have got better as well. And the buildings have not improved. And um, we I wanted to do an April Fool's joke thing on radio saying that nationwide we're going to open up a branch. Um, <laughs> and I got fired just before we could do it. It's such a shame. No. Na- nationwide were up for doing it, not opening <laughs> the branch, but pretending they were going to do it. It's so good. Why did you get fired? Different story. Not for now. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> was it because of the incident? Because <laughs> of the, a different incident, but it was, you know, there were there were incidents. It'd be funny if the the the, uh, the Reddit feed becomes not people talking about who they find fancy in history, but people debating what the incident was that <laughs> got Steve and Alan fired. Rotten boroughs were rife in the 19th century. There were there were also at least three rotten boroughs located in George III's powdered wig. Also, each one of the 40,000 interlocking basalt columns of Giant's Causeway was its own borough with a corresponding member of Parliament. And Prince Albert's Prince Albert Piercing was a rotten borough, which at one point was represented by a young William Gladstone. So there's some fun facts for you. Uh, Steve, if you can tell a borough is rotten by the number of constituents, how do you tell if a borough is ripe? Interesting. Yeah, the smell. No, the touch. What am I talking about? You've got to go up and see if things feel a bit <laughs> plump. That's the incident. <laughs> Catha, how do you reckon you can tell if a borough is ripe? I guess how much liquid's coming out of it, right? <laughs> I was at a housemate who left a banana in a cupboard for so long that it turned to liquid. <laughs> That's a long time, isn't it? That? Is that how they make banana milkshakes? It's impressive. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. 
once you've got rid of all the flies and the smell. <laughs> but he, uh, I think, was wealthy and uh, didn't care. Imagine ha- having having that much money that you could waste a banana. <laughs> he was rich. What kind of these rich assholes not paying attention to all of their bananas? Oh, honestly. <laughs> Steve, Kath is from like a quite poor part of Manchester. She's got a very different idea of <laughs> from different what wealth is compared to us, uh, us honky dudes. <laughs> Most rotten boroughs were abolished in the 1832 Reform Act, after which they were composted and turned into Tory safe seats. Peel was considered a rising star of the Tory party. A lady called Elizabeth Fry visited Newgate Prison and was appalled at the conditions of women and girls there. This led her to give evidence to a House of Commons select committee about the sexual degradation of women and girls at the hands of both male prisoners and warders. By 1822, Peel was Home Secretary, and it was under him that the Jails Act of 1823, which segregated prisons and, as a nice bonus, introduced payment for jailers was passed. Apparently before that, they were paid out of the pocket of the prisoners, which apparently resulted in inconsistent pay. Um, it's a bit like if uh, you paid a job centre workers out of the pockets of the claimants that come in. doesn't work. <laughs> I assume this is the point in the podcast where Kath asks the perfectly reasonable question, why are we not doing this episode about Elizabeth Fry and why are we doing it about Robert Peel? And that's because, Kath, the true untold story of history is that of the privileged white man who was born privileged, died privileged, and whose name hasn't so far, but should echo in eternity. And that's what we set up this podcast to do. Tell the story of dead, moneyed, honky men. That is true. Um, However, what confuses me is he's from Bury, right? And he's part of the Conservative Party. Why? What is this a concern? Well, no, I, <laughs> I wasn't expecting I that. I thought that was a legitimate question. No, it was just another little dig at Barry. There's kind of a, a weird thing with the, the Tories at the moment, at least. If you are looking for feisty north, which side of the country is that, western um, women, there's been loads from Edwina Curry, um, Nadine Dorris, and now Gillian Keegan. There's kind of, you know, it's, it's a pocket... Every so often, the Tories look for someone from the the northwest that they could just say, "Could you go and represent something for us, so we don't get told off for being southern all the time?" <laughs> I'll represent them. Well, the key answer to that, Steve, is that none of them are from Bury, so they are conserving things, but they're not conserving that place. Steve, why do why do you think the story of the rich white man has gone untold in history books? I mean, it's an injustice, isn't it? It's um, I think it's because the stories for a while. I'm not a history buff, and you'll you'll work that out in the next sentence. I believe during that <laughs> period of history, stories were passed down uh, from one generation to the next generation verbally, and uh, you know, blokes don't really talk, do we? So that's why. <laughs> <laughs> the Jails Act was largely ineffective because there were no inspectors to make sure that it was followed. The Prisoners Act of 1835, <laughs> <laughs> the Prisoners Act of 1835, offered a remedy by providing for the appointment of five paid prison inspectors. I like that. I'm a sh- I don't know if that's five. <laughs> per prison or what's more likely five paid prison inspectors for the entire fucking country <laughs> that level of logic of like the i don't know if you know, even if it's a true fact or not but like the tin opener was invented either before the tin or years after the tin. one of those things <laughs> it's like yeah, we've got a new rule that means prisons must be run by this <sighs> thank heavens who's going to check on it yeah <laughs> they have to do another law brilliant <laughs> 
I mean, really, that's all laws are, though, aren't they? They're just social sticking plasters for things that humans cannot be trusted to do themselves and uh, just keep putting more plasters on. Mm -hmm. Well, in the same vein, we now have the five-point health and safety, not health and safety, the hygiene green card that goes up on establishments. And I often think that (laughs) that's that's a stupid system because no one puts up a three, do they? No one's proudly printing off their two-star review and slapping it on the door. Come in, it's cheap, and you know what you're getting. I mean, you could arguably just print one of them out, couldn't you? You know, like if you're faking a pregnancy and you just get the picture off the internet and just show it to people. (laughs) I might print one of those out for the shed. Yeah, do it. The five stars, not the pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Go on, treat yourself. I saw on, online as well for about a couple of quid you can buy the signs that they're not the baby on board ones for the tube, but the ones that say, "Oh, um, please offer me a seat." Yes, the, the the new version that you because you can't give away any information about why you may need a seat. It's just this vague threat of offer me your seat, bitch, and you can just buy them now. Yeah. So two quid later, I'm sitting down. There. <laughs> Pretty good. Well, the baby on board ones are for free because they had a big pot of them at Euston Station. And I was like, could I just take one of those? And they were like, yeah. And then my friend was like, Catherine, you're not pregnant. You're not having one. And I'm like, shut your whole mouth. (laughs) (laughs) That's when you got the picture out of your pocket and went, well, actually. (laughs) And also down the side, it says stock image. Yeah, that's what we're calling it. (laughs) Yeah, Getty. Getty. What a beautiful name. (laughs) Alamy, 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 Alamy. Peel also passed the Judgment of Death Act 1823, which does sound like the title of a 2000 AD comic, but is actually a law, <laughs> along with four others passed at the same time that lifted the death penalty for 130 crimes. I think that's quite hot. I'm just going to say it. Fucking 130 crimes. What were they? Because, I mean, you can get like, okay, maybe I can understand why at one point rape and murder had the death penalty. But 130, that suggests like stealing a penny sweet from a, from a shop. Was was resulting in a local town beheading or something? I don't think I could name 130 crimes. Shall we start now? <laughs> that shows you it's more about the the killing than the crimes, isn't it? If you're the 130, that's you've got to have a weekend of brainstorming to come up with that many crimes because they couldn't Google, right? No. Right. Um, so yeah, this is more <laughs> about killing. You know, a lot of the convicts that got sent to Australia, and this includes my Australian wife's like great 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 grandmother. They, I just assumed for years they must have been very hardened criminals. They weren't. They were like bread thieves. In a... I read a wonderful book called The Floating Brothel, which, yeah, I did buy it because it was 50p in a charity shop and called The Floating Brothel. But it was about sending people to Australia like that. And basically most of the women that got sent there, it was, well, they sent a load of blokes out there who were criminals. And then they were like, okay, the men are horny. Um, <laughs> what? And they're hungry. And we can't send food because it, it's a long way. But we do have a lot of women. So they basically just sent women as... I mean, like, yeah, they've done very minor crimes, but it's like, do you want to die in this prison cell here, just shitting yourself to death in public, or do you want to get on a boat and maybe survive? And they're like, well, I, I guess the boat then. Um, did they do that before or after they sent loads of rabbits? Because I'm slightly worried that their first <laughs> attempt... How do we calm down these blokes? A lot of rabbits. Oh, shit, we fucked the ecosystem. Right, now just send over some uh, sweary ladies. Send over. What's the natural predator? (laughs) (laughs) Ladies. Peel had been one of the most outspoken opponents of Catholic emancipation, earning the nickname Orange Peel. Fun, right? 
<laughs> in eight, that's not even that's not my joke. That's a joke made by nineteenth century parliamentarians. I love it. <laughs> in eighteen twenty-eight, the threat of civil disorder and Irish rebellion reared its head. If recently elected Catholic Irish leader Daniel O'Connell was barred from Parliament, Prime Minister Wellington and Home Secretary Peel now conceded the necessity of Catholic emancipation. Peel writing to Wellington that though emancipation was a great danger, civil strife was a greater danger. Steve, have you ever participated in sectarian violence? Not for a while now, not since the incident, <laughs> um, which is difficult to do in Wiltshire because there's not really two sides. You know, there's the Trowbridge versus Dis- Divisors gangs. And uh, yeah, you don't like to see them meet. No, I tend to, I tend to not do. I, uh, again, not since, I'm trying to think the worst. I managed to clean up after some sectarian violence at a gig in a cousin-loving area after <laughs> someone went on and absolutely ripped the room apart in the wrong way. Oh, dear. Tell me more. <laughs> Imagine a set that goes so badly it turns one part of a town against the next. Oh, my God. I can only yeah, dream of that. <laughs> Kath, uh, I was going to ask you the same question, but uh, you're kind of engaging in some form of uh, sectarian violence now by trying to turn Rochdale against the people of Bury. Oh, they were already against each other, and that is because the people <laughs> of Bury are pieces of shit. Every single one of them. So they're pieces of shit, which kind of implies if you add them together, you might form a whole shit, as opposed to the people are pieces of shits, individual pieces that are mm. just individual. That's damning. You are one eighth a piece. Of, you are one eighth of a shit, and that's all you want. <laughs> I do remember once going uh, to a Rochdale versus Bury uh, football game, and we were on the terraces, and the Bury side decided that they were going to come and beat us all up, right? So they all rushed to try and get into our stand to beat us up and they're they're actually very good uh stewards there because they managed to hold most people back but one man got through and continued just running down the stairs oh i'm gonna get you and then he realized how alone he was and just slowed down (laughs) and and then walked away Uh, and that's the kind of cowardice that you see from people in Bury. again we need you Bury listeners please please continue to subscribe to our podcast um, I'm, I'm a child of sectarianism. Uh, the leafy suburbs of Harrogate, where I'm from, uh, there's a sort of sectarian battle between people who own double driveways and people who own conservatory extensions. I'm in the double driveway camp. We sometimes go on orange drives through the conservatory areas where we drive burnt orange Nissan Qashqai's side by side through the streets to rile them up. And then we paint murals on the conservatories, which blocks the sunlight, and it really pisses them off. There is quite a difference between a burnt Nissan and a burnt orange Nissan. That's quite a good correction. <laughs> well, the, the, conserv- the, smell. the conservatory people set alight the Nissans, and then in an act of defiance, we get in the burning Nissans and then drive it through their areas to, so we can paint the murals on the conservatories. Just to... To ruin their um, whatever rating you get for air quality, you know the kind of ULES based exactly. articulate matter <laughs> rating. Yeah, I'd like their apples. Yeah, Peel drew up the Catholic Relief Bill with many ultra Tories vehemently opposed to emancipation. The bill could only pass with Whig support. Um, I think ultra Tories is what the Tories are now rebranding themselves under the successive leaderships of Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Prime Minister Wellington threatened to resign if Georgie Ford did not give royal assent. The King relented. And the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829 passed into law. Peel's U-turn cost him the trust of many Tories. According to the amusingly named historian Norman Gash, Peel 
had been <laughs> Peel had been the idolised champion of the <laughs> Protestant Party. That party now regarded him as an outcast. Who cares? An historian's called Norman Gash. That's the big takeaway I want everyone to take away from that little bit there. Norman Gash. Uh, I'm currently reading a book about Napoleon by Nigel Axwound, and that's got a forward. <laughs> it's got a for, It's got a forward by uh, Gerald Minge. It's a, a single book. <laughs> Uh, this is really cool, I think. So bear in mind, they've passed Catholic emancipation. Peel felt compelled to stand for re-election to his seat in Oxford as he was representing the graduates of Oxford University, many of whom are Anglican clergymen. And he had previously stood on a platform in opposition to Catholic emancipation. So by doing the opposite of what his uh, mandate was, he felt he had to re-put himself up. Who the fuck does that now? I'll tell you, no <laughs> one does that now. I like how Liz Trust kept, Liz Trust kept using that phrase about I've got the mandate to dot, dot, dot. It's like you've, you, didn't, you don't know what that means. Yeah, you think it's that perfume from the eighties? It's not. <laughs> but I bet she smells of it. Yeah. Mandate for the Tory woman who wants to reek of power and kill the queen. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, this is the other theory about Liz Truss, though. That originally she was an anti-monarchist Lib Dem, and so far she's got rid of the queen and ruined the Tories. So oh, wow. sleeper agent, but a great. She's one. been activated. Yeah. By her... her handler. Someone called up and said something about cheese markets. <laughs> She's off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Peel lost this seat after this by-election, but he soon found another Tamworth in the general election of 1830, the seat he represented until his death. In 1829, Peel established the uh, Metropolitan Police Force for London, based at Scotland Yard. The 1,000 constables employed were affectionately nicknamed Bobbies, or somewhat less affectionately, Peelers. In 1834, Peel became Prime Minister for the first time for a brief 100 days. Steve, what's the shortest job you've ever had? One month working in a uh, dialysis fluid um, laboratory or a quality control testing lab. And basically, I had to titrate piss water. And um, yeah, did it for a month. Stopped doing it then. <laughs> You're like, good quality, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> Only when you get really advanced can you do it by uh, by taste. Smell is the main is the main thing. That one of those wafts that you do. Like. Do they put it in like a wine glass? Yeah, you've got to gargle and spit. No one. It's piss water. Come on, you've got to do it right. So you were there for one month. That makes you a less good kidney dialysis tester, machine tester than Liz Truss was at being a prime minister. Which, no offence, Steve, that's damning. That is damning. Well, it depends. If you measure it purely in terms of time spent, yes. In terms of how much I massively fucked up the UK, <laughs> I'm far better. I only killed three people, so... And in terms of piss water drank, <laughs> you were winning. <laughs> yeah, although given what they've done to our uh, waterways, yeah. Now it's more about the turds in our water. So actually, I'm ready for it. Bring it. I think you'll find it's more about the turds in Parliament. Hey. And that sound you can hear is the uh, satire siren going off again. I'll just turn that off. Mm -hmm. Peel was offered a second chance to form a government by the new queen, Vicky Wan. Peel said yes on the condition that some of Vicky Wan's ladies of the bedchamber, who were largely held by wives and relatives of Whigs, be partially replaced with Tories. Vicky Wan refused and the Whigs returned to power. This became known as the bedchamber crisis. Steve, have you ever as an adult man tried to dictate the invite list of a woman's sleepover? <laughs> no. There we go. <laughs> I think it's better to say just no and clean, sweet, move on from it, especially at the moment. I don't want to be involved in any WhatsApp groups. Kath, have you ever tried to dictate the political makeup of a loved one's friends? <laughs> Today I've done that. <laughs> 
Uh, my wife asked me to do the bins last month and I said I would only do it if she changed the social makeup of her friends to reflect the current political makeup of parliament. So 54% Tory, 30% Labour, 6% SNP, 2% Lib Dems. And she did do it, but only because we have an alternating system of bin collection. And she knew that if she didn't do it, the recycling wouldn't get changed for a full month. And our bin isn't big enough to take a full month's worth of empty baked bean tins and Weetabix boxes. In 1841, a general election was called by the incumbent Whig government and resulted in a major Tory party victory under Peel's leadership. One of the acts that they passed under this ministry was the Factory Act of 1844, which restricted the number of hours that children and women could work in a factory and set rudimentary standards uh, for safety standards for machinery. Catherine, Steve, what do we think the Factory Act of 1844 reduced the working hours of children and women too. It's going to be something insane, like 80, isn't it? It's going to be like 80 hours a week, and if you're missing a limb, then it's 75. (laughs) Is it expressed as a percentage of the workforce, or just how many? (laughs) It's uh, hours a day. Yeah, I think it's it's expressed as a function of life left, isn't it? So uh, (laughs) until they've drained all of the life from you, work. The Act ensured that children of 9 to 13 years could work for nine hours a day with a lunch break. So we've got no reason to complain there. Ages must be verified by surgeons. <laughs> like how I don't know how they're doing that. Chop them in two and count the rings, I don't know. <laughs> Women and the young could work for no more than 12 hours a day during the week, including one and a half hours for meals and nine hours on Sunday. Some classes of machinery, such as flywheels, hoists and taggles, were to be securely fenced. I mean, what I like about this law is it says a lot about what the world was like before this law passed (laughs) and what it was like after the law was passed. Uh, Children and women were not to clean moving machinery. Again, I love that that was happening before the bill was passed. (laughs) Little Timmy, you've got small hands. Can you give this mechanical wheel a polish? Are we going to turn it off beforehand? If you ever ask such an impertinent question again, you're not going to get your bowl of gruel. Am I the only one thinking an hour and a half for lunch, though? Hour and a half? Get back to work. It's disgraceful. That's actually quite good, isn't it? That's actually quite good. <laughs> I've only ever had that if I did it. I did a 12-hour shift at a place, and you got an hour and a half for 12. But little did I know at the time that I had it as good as a child working in a factory. In the uh, 1830s. In fact, I had it less good because that was a 12-hour day. These kids are only doing nine. Yeah. Get back to work. It's called lunch hour. <laughs> How well do you think that you would fare in the past? Because I, <laughs> I, I read these stories. Well, if it was after the factory act, a lot better. <laughs> but, like, can you imagine? Like, you live, you're drinking water that's got shit in it. You're living in a room with three other families. You're constantly pregnant and giving birth and stuff. There is no way that like you're you're working twelve hour days. There is no way that you can live without stealing. If you get caught stealing, you get sent to Australia. Best case scenario for seven years, <laughs> but then you've got to fund your way back. Worst case scenario, you die in a prison where you've got to pay people to keep you in prison. Like, do you think you'd know it was shit? Because part of me just thinks I'd lie down and die. Kath, 90-minute lunch break. 90-minute lunch break. What the fuck are you complaining about? Yeah, but I no, I think that's the problem, that we don't know now how shit our life is. And in the future, some 
virtual podcast AI thing will be looking back and mocking the they worked from home after a pandemic, which they they just died from because they weren't that clever about stuff. So I think it will always be possible to look back and think how terrible things were. I I think I've already reached the age that I would have died at in the past. <laughs> Me too. So now this is just it's, yeah, it's all it's all great. Why not? Well, there's certain points in the past where being 15 years old was probably middle aged. So yeah, we're doing. Which is why Romeo and Juliet wasn't problematic. <laughs> Still was a bit though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely was. Yeah. Do you want to know some of the fun things that were in the Factory Act of 1844? Oh my god, yeah. Accidental death must be reported to a surgeon and investigated. <laughs> Paperwork. Oh. The result of the investigation is to be reported to a factory inspector. So what, you'd just be like, where's mum? <laughs> well, I, th- I think what's happening is like, you're getting called into a meeting and the boss is like, so last night the cleaning staff discovered another dead street urchin. Guys, it's one form. One form. <laughs> For God's sake. Here's another one, another good one. Factory owners must wash factories with lime every 14 months. How fucking gross was it? Because <laughs> you've got people dying in there, man. You've got like bits of their hands, kids' fingers just in wheels and shit. But every 14 months you have to go around and do that deep clean and the number of street urchins you'll find, which just means the next <laughs> fortnight... Just, just brushed, brushed under spinning jennies. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, mum! There she is. God, it stinks in here. When, when's the lime guy coming around? And it's, like, it's October. It's like, fuck. Still four months to go. Jesus, it stinks of shit. It smells of rigor mortis in here. <laughs> As a former chemist, I feel the need to point out they're not talking about that lime. <laughs> I come around and, and could you just citrus this place <laughs> up a bit? <laughs> now, obviously, it's lime disease that we're talking about here. That's the one, yeah. Uh, just drew a Pete, uh, Aidan McCaffrey, not a historian, just putting it out there, or indeed a, a, a chemist. <laughs> Kath, uh, how sexy do you find tariff abolition? Um, very. Uh, how many tariffs has your boyfriend Reese abolished? Uh, I mean, he can bo- abolish my tariff uh, any time, um, but uh, none that I know of. Steve, do you have a partner? Have they ever had an impact on the macroeconomics of the cereal grain trade? I do eat uh, a lot of Rice Krispies. So yeah, they're keeping those imports high. Well, if tariff abolition gets you off, then get ready for some immense moistening because we're about to discuss the repeal of the Corn Laws. The most notable act of Peel's second ministry was the one that would bring it down. Triggered by the Great Irish Famine, Peel moved against the landholders and his own party by repealing the Corn Laws, which supported agricultural revenues by restricting grain imports. Um, Ireland continued to export substantial quantities of food to Great Britain, despite its domestic privations. The problem in Ireland was not lack of food, but the price of it, which was beyond the reach of the poor. On the plus side, a 2021 study in the Economic Journal found that the repeal of the Corn Laws 10% of income earners in Britain, whereas the bottom 90% of income earners gained. His own party failed to pass the bill, but it supported with Whig, but it passed with Whig and radical support. Uh, Steve, how aroused are you on a scale of one to five uh, cereal grains? The uh, yeah, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm liking some of what I'm hearing. Um, I'm disappointed it's not the other kind of tariff where, because relatively recently I went sim only and made a, a big ass saving and i thought he might have been responsible for that but so it's not as good i mean good but not as good 
Well, everything everywhere didn't exist back there, sadly. Uh, back then, sadly, but I'm sure if it did, uh, Robert Peel would have been all over it. Repealing the Corn Laws earned Robert the nickname Corn Repeal. It didn't. I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for the drummer in the background after like Orange Peel, and it's but it's not a proper drum. There's gonna yeah, dum and a little jingle of some bells. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think um, I, I don't know about you. I think this is quite hard. <laughs> Because I know it's, we're talking about tariff reform here, but the thing is, right, no one goes... Very few people go against... Their, I'm going to earnestly try and make, make a case for us having sex appeal now. No one goes against their own party. It's political suicide to go against the vast will of your own party. So I, I think he deserves a, a good... At least a good hand job for this, because uh, no one does this shit. I'm just putting it out there. Peel was thrown from his horse while riding on Constitution Hill in London on the 29th of June, 1850. He was out of government by this point. Um, the horse stumbled on top of him and he died three days later. Uh, he left behind his wife, Julia, who was a woman, which back then was enough, and seven children. Peel is featured on the cover of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club album. Uh, biographer on his legacy, biographer Norman Gash, wrote that Peel's personal qualities were administrative skill, capacity for work, personal integrity, a sense of duty, and an outstanding intellect. This isn't hugely important, but I just really like the name Norman Gash, so I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> We're almost at the end of this episode. Uh, just a few of the things he did before we get there. He introduced the first non-wartime income tax in the UK. Um, he issued the Tamworth Manifesto, which is the basis on which the modern Conservative Party was founded, pledging that Conservatives would endorse modest reforms such as uh, economic and financial affairs, free trade and factory workers' rights. And one final fun fact... The manor house in which he was born has since been demolished, and the site is currently occupied by Drayton Manor Theme Park. Uh, Drayton Manor Theme Park was, for the first several decades, called Peel Land, and it was a Robert Peel-themed adventure park uh, with rides <laughs> including Income Tax Mountain, It's a Corn World, Pirates of the Catholic Emancipation, and the Tamworth Manifesto bobsleds. Steve and Kath, where are we on this? Would we bang Robert Peel? Is he going to end up on the biotap history? What do you reckon, Steve? You go first. Yeah, if well, if he had a if he had a theme park named after him, all of a sudden I'm turned up by the idea. Um, <laughs> Lovely land. Yeah, well, <laughs> the idea that next to his bed there'd be a little uh, display that says how high you need to be, how tall you need to be to ride this, which I is a thing I should get. That seems kind of sexy. Um, you have to be this tall to abolish a cornwall. Yeah, <laughs> I. Do you know what? I started out just on on pure looks. There's a lot going on, but I think if anything, I've I've been you know I, he he was into maths. That's hot for me. But I think I've been turned off sexually by some of the stuff that happened. So I think I'm uh, I'm going to keep it in my pants. Like what? He, he he came up with the thing that gave us the modern conservatives. If you could go back in time and shoot someone, you got you got Hitler, baby, baby Hitler, or just before they give us the modern conservatives. <laughs> what would you do? Right, hang on. Right, in his defence. In his defense, the Tory party were worse before this. This is the point. They're like, they are totally anti-reform. And he basically said, it's okay for us sometimes to reform things. So he made, yes, he made the modern Tory party, but the one before, it was just fucking horrendous. I, I know what you mean, but by, by slowly moving it into modernity, it survived. Whereas, yeah, maybe it could have just failed. That's true. He ensured their survival. Kath, uh, would you peel back the foreskin of Robert Peel, or uh, would you uh, not do that? <laughs> like a banana. 
<laughs> I'm usually turned off by any man that has a manifesto because they're usually in a in a shed, aren't they? Posting <laughs> bombs to people. Um, What's wrong with being in a shed and? sufficiently trained in chemistry to be able to make bombs. Stop throwing this stuff at me. But are you posting them to people? And were you part of MK Ultra? Well, not yet. It's £1.10 for a first class. You can jog on. Yeah, that's fucking mental, isn't it? Have they started making them with King Charles on them yet? Or is it still all the Queen? Is that what you're holding out for? Yeah. As soon as they turn up, then bombs are going out. Um, but my answer, not digging the tuberculosis heroin chic that he's got going on. Good hair, like that. Don't like the death look. From Bury, don't like that at all. But then went to Oxford, which is arguably worse. Not enjoying any of that either. I bet he mentioned it all the fucking time. <laughs> um, he's a raving Tory. Dislike that. Uh, even if he did do good things, it wasn't good though, was it? Like you were still making kids work very long days. So fuck you. I'm glad he got trampled by that horse and it took him three days to die of his wounds. Wow. You are in a quite amazing <laughs> mood. You've still not said whether you would sleep with him or not. I'm sorry, I need to... Yes, yes, I would. No. <laughs> no. no, I don't think I would. Also, he invented the fucking police. They're not... They've not been doing well, have they, recently? So yeah, no, I don't... No, fuck him. Don't fuck him. Well, okay. Well, I think I would, you know. I think he's good looking and I... I uh, do believe that a tiny bit of progress is still progress, even if things are still quite terrible. But I don't think he can go in the... Usually, if one of us will bang him, we'll put him on the biotap industry. But uh, it feels wrong for me to override you two's opinion after trying to co- trying and failing to convince you. It would feel wrong for him to go, well, fuck you anyway, I'm putting him on. So, uh, Robert Peel, alas... The second Prime Minister that we've done on this podcast, the other being Margaret Thatcher, uh, <laughs> not on the biotech latistry. So there is still place for a uh, UK Prime Minister on him. Maybe one day one will get on. Who knows? Steve, uh, thanks for coming on our podcast. You were very funny. Where can people find you? In a shed. Yeah. <laughs> if you know where I live. Um, if you do, please don't turn up into my shed. That'd be terrifying. <laughs> and there are knives in here. Of course, there are all well, those spoons. But I, I could do a good job. Um, the, I mean, social media would be the thing because I'm doing. We're doing some clips. We're doing some extra mash content actually. So uh, that's an internet thing. I don't know if you heard about the internet. It's going to be quite popular, I believe. Mm-hmm. So track me down on social media. I do a radio show. I do a podcast from that radio show. Uh, just rebranded as Stephen Allen almost daily. And uh, yeah, I'm in it, so I like it. So there. I also have quite an active eBay page because my career is going so well. Could we, <laughs> if you want to buy any of this shit, then, then just please, yeah, some of that. Nice. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Please share our content on social media. Share our little videos we release of the episodes to your Instagram stories. Spread the word. Spread your legs. Retweet us. And remember, it's not what's on the outside; <laughs> it's what's on the inside of the coffin that counts. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Historical Hot or Not, written and created by Aidan McCaffrey and Catherine Mather. The podcast art was by our good friend Richard Todd, and our theme music by excellent musician and also good friend David Eagle. We also have music by Ergo Fismas, Lesser License from the Free Music Archive. If you've enjoyed us and you would like to donate to the cause, we would love you to do that also. You can find us at ko forward slash hotnot.
Not Pod, and you can download bonus episodes of Historical Hot or Not from Acast Plus. The link is available on our Linktree, linktree.com forward slash hotnotpod. Bye! And this episode also featured the track Itchy La Femme Triple X Mix by Louis Vertigo, which was licensed from the Free Music Archive.